the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer of the podcast. If you have a story or you know someone who has a story that might want to share it with our listeners, please reach out to us. You can find us on Facebook at the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, or our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or you can just email us, theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and also please subscribe to our YouTube channel, because when you do that, and when you give us a good rating or a thumbs up, it helps people who are suffering through this pandemic find us. And our goal is always to give people a message of hope and to let them know that help is available. Today's episode is episode number 250, and this is going to be part two of our Purdue Sackler panels talking about the illegal and unethical marketing of OxyContin by Purdue Pharma under the direction of the Sackler family. So today, to talk about this, we have Ed Bish, and Ed Bish has been on our podcast before. Ed Bish's son died of an overdose of OxyContin. Ed did not just sit by and give up. He started researching OxyContin and its manufacturer, Purdue Pharma, and the family behind it, the Sacklers. He's been fighting this battle for years, and he doesn't see giving up until both the company and the family are made to take full responsibility for the countless deaths due to OxyContin addiction and overdose. In December of 2020, Ed appeared in the MSNBC special, The Forgotten Epidemic. We also have on our panel today, a lady named Beth Macy. Beth Macy, parsed her evolution from paper girl to ink stained author with long form podcast host, Evan Ratliff, literally being the only female newspaper deliverer in her small Ohio home, Ohio hometown, where she learned to roam around talking, she said actually interviewing, to all kinds of people. It's still her favorite thing to do. She is a best-selling author. She wrote the book, Factory Man, How One Furniture Maker Battled Offshoring in 2014. She wrote True Vine, Two Brothers, A Kidnapping and a Mother's Quest in 2016. In 2018, she wrote the best-selling book, Dope Sick. And Dope Sick was re recently turned into an eight-part docu-series on Hulu. Then in 2019, she wrote Finding Tess, A Mother's Search for Answers in a Dope Sick America. Let's talk to both Ed and Beth and find out more about the Purdue, the Sacklers, sorry, and Purdue Pharma. Ed Bish and Beth Macy, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today. I am super excited to talk to you both, Ed again, and Beth newly, very excited. Happy to be here. Thank you. Nice to see you again, Joni. Good to see you, Ed. So Beth Macy, author of fabulous book, made into fabulous series, Dope Sick, 
tell us how a little bit about your background, where you grew up, kind of how you got even got into looking at this whole epidemic. Sure. So I'm from a little small town, a former factory town called Urbana, Ohio. I was the first person in my family to go to college. I went solely on financial aid and scholarships, grew up really poor and um, had a, a, from a family with four generations of addiction, to be honest, alcoholism and, um, and education was really my way out. It was really my way out. I have often said if I had been born 15 years later, when the government's uh, aid no longer covered a full college education, I would be one of the people I'm writing about rather than the writer of the book. So I was a longtime journalist. I wrote about outsiders and underdogs. This is like 30 years of my uh, newspaper work. And then I started writing books in 2014. My first book was about the aftermath of globalization set about an hour south of where I live in Martinsville, Virginia. And this is one of these uh, distressed former factory towns. And so I told that lens through a hero who had, um, you know, gone against the wave of what was happening and kept his factory open. And it was super interesting how he did it. And I thought it was really important. But what happened at the end, as I was finishing up my reporting, we're talking about a small little town uh former tobacco then it was totally run by what they called it the factory floor of virginia it was where all the furniture was made all the textiles were made all the jobs were gone pretty much and um i started hearing about drug crime uh heroin in a small town and um you know people suddenly locking their doors when they had never locked their doors and i sort of filed it away i mentioned it briefly at the end of the book but then when I went um, back to, uh, I went back to my newspaper for a brief time and I ended up doing a series on heroin, not in the inner cities, which is what I normally wrote about, but in uh, the wealthiest suburbs, wealthy white suburbs. And people sort of spit their coffee out and said, what the heck? We didn't know uh, we had wealthy white kids doing heroin. And how did that happen? And so I followed the travails of these two families whose lives are upended. And then when I put, I actually uh, proposed to my editor and my agent that this could be my second book. They looked at me like I had two heads. This was 2013. And they said, heroin, really? We, we think you're, and these are people who live in New York and are in a bit of a bubble. And they said, we think you're just late getting it in Rona. We had heroin here in the nineties. And I was like, Okay, so I did another book and then I came back. And by the time I came back with a book proposal for a third book, um, I don't take a lot of years off. Uh, so <laughs> this was 2015. Uh, you know, we knew that our life expectancy was going down for the first time in America since World War One. And that was mainly due to drug overdose, uh, suicide and alcoholism related cirrhosis. So then I had, uh, you know, a hook. And also Kenoni's book, Dreamland, had come out. And so we knew how that piece of it worked, which was largely, you know, bigger cities. And I wanted to tell the story of Appalachia and how it had first gotten started with OxyContin, because most people still didn't know that OxyContin and heroin were basically chemical cousins. And that's that was the initial frame for dope sick. Wow. You know, you bring up you bring up a point that we've made over and over again on this podcast, and that is that addiction is not just the dirty homeless guy under the bridge. 
it is the wealthy kids in the wealthy neighborhoods who raid the medicine cabinets and yeah. So, and then end up going on heroin because it is a cheaper alternative to pills. Totally. Yeah. And I can understand how, when you first wanted to write about this, people are like heroin, you know, who cares about those people? Do you know what I mean? Until you find out that it's not those people, it's anybody. It was literally around them too. They just didn't know it because it wasn't getting any press, you know, like think about Queens and the Bronx. I mean, it just, they weren't getting the attention in the same way that the small towns weren't getting the attention too. But if, if, if I had bothered to go to these small towns more, I would have seen it as well. Yep. Yep. Thank you, Beth. So Ed, tell us a little bit about your background. I want to come back to your book, Dope Sick, Beth, but I want to get a little bit from Ed here. Tell us how you got involved. You're a dad. How did you get involved in this whole thing? Uh, Yes. um, So back in 2001, I was at work. I got a call from my daughter. She said, Dad, Eddie's not breathing and he's turning blue. I told her to call 911. I hopped in a cab. I worked in Center City, Philadelphia. Told the cab driver, hurry, hurry. Got out of the cab at the corner, saw an ambulance in front of my house, and I said, thank you, God. As, I, as I'm running up the block, I, I noticed two guys were sitting in the ambulance, and they said, sorry, sir. And I just said, don't, don't tell me he's dead. And they said, sorry, sir. And I just broke down. And uh, I went in the house and my brother was already in there. And uh, Eddie was dead in his bed. And, you know, you're just in shock. And I'm crying at the kitchen table and a police sergeant. Well, before that, Eddie's friends started gathering outside. So I go outside and I said, because I knew Eddie was at a party the night before. And I'm like, tell me, tell me what he did. And they said, an oxy. I said, an oxy? What the hell's an oxy? They said, oxycontin. I said, what the hell's an oxycontin? They said, it's like a strong Percocet. I said, no. No, my son's dead. And that's the very first time I heard the word Oxycontin. And I went back in and um, I was had my head down at the table. And a police sergeant came in and he said, Oxycontin, kids are dying left and right from this. And I popped my head up. I said, what? How did I never even hear this? And my son's dead. And you're telling me kids are dying left and right? And I, I think I knew right then there, I had to warn. I had to warn everybody I could. And uh, right away, in 2001, the internet was new. My sister was there. She got on the internet. And we did a, a Yahoo search. I don't even think Google was around. And it was like, oh, my God, we're seeing all these stories from Southwest Virginia, from Maine, not one story from Philadelphia. Wow. I was told in the previous three months, 23 people had died. And I was like, and no one saying nothing. So we started that night. We started faxing high schools. 
And uh, I was in the Philadelphia Daily News the next day, and we actually held a press conference, and there was five TV stations in Philadelphia, news state, you know, that ran news, and they were all there. And uh, that was 2001, and ever since, I've been warning. I started out just warning kids not to mess with this deadly new drug. But as I learned more and more, and I learned that the company was lying, saying it's less less than one percent of patients get addicted, and yeah, I started a message board, which turned into a website, and I started hearing from parents all over the country, and they were telling me or asking me, "What can we do? What can we do?" So in two thousand three we held the second protest against Purdue Pharma in one of their lavish seminars in Orlando, Florida. And they said, well, we got to have a name. What should we call ourselves? And we came up with RAPP, R-A-P-P, Relatives Against Purdue Pharma. And um, I have pictures from the 2003, and never did I imagine that 20 years later, I'd still be doing this. Well, first of all, thank you for everything you've done, Ed. And you were actually at the forefront of this whole thing, because if I remember correctly, the the OxyContin really hit and expanded with this lie about the less than 1% in around 1999. Is that correct? Right. Well, it was 2001 now, right Right after my son died, or right over, yeah, probably right after my son died in February. So the FDA changed the label, but they gave Purdue Pharma a gift with the wording. Yeah. So instead of stopping kids from dying, it actually opened the floodgates. And it, it, it was, a, you, you know, there's nine books written about this. You, you guys talked about it. I talked about it. Dr. Curtis Wright and the FDA was in cahoots with Purdue Pharma. Curtis Wright pretty much let Purdue Pharma write their own wording. They approved OxyContin with no test with wording. It is believed to be less addictive. Believed. What kind of scientist uses the word believed? So Criminal. Absolutely criminal. It, it, Definitely was criminal. Yep. Beth, when did you become involved, like, in the in in your book, Dope Sick, is phenomenal. I haven't read the book, but I did watch the series. Phenomenal story. When did you become involved specifically with OxyContin and that whole part of it? Well, I set out to tell the story of heroin, and in order to tell that story, I had to go back to where the kids had gotten addicted. And that summer of 2012, when I followed those two families around that I was telling you about earlier, um, the one young man had died of overdose and the other was about to go to prison for five years, federal prison for five years. And they had been using together for for his role in uh, selling his uh, him the heroin that that killed him. Uh, But they were both using um, and the judge let him go to drug court as he got ready before he went to prison that year. And he saw it as, um, he said, he's, he's got karma to give back. 
And so we drove all over town. He couldn't drive. And I would take him to his karate classes. And um, he would show me places where he had done drugs. He would tell me about Oxycontin. He showed me uh, a pharmacy van that he had helped rob once. He um, he told me the word dope sick. And um, he just reminded me of that recently. He came to the premiere here locally that we had at our movie theater. He's been out of prison for several years now. And he said, dude, I told you that word dope sick. And he's, <laughs> Give me credit. I was like, Spencer, you're right. Uh, I didn't know dope sick. And, and what he said was, and this is why we called the book, we wanted it to be in your face, because this is a story that should be in everyone's face, because nobody is immune. But I remember him describing, he said, it's all about not being sick. And because you once you get hooked, you have to have that, uh, you know, opioid, or you're going to get just the worst sick you've ever felt. You know, he said it was like the worst flu times 100, which like, Every person I've interviewed since, since then has has almost said that to a word. But he said, if you don't, if you know you're not going to see your dope man till Thursday and it's Monday, you parse it out. Even though you'd be a little bit dope sick, uh, if you just have a little bit, you you don't ever want to run out. And I remember just the desperation on his face when he was telling me that. And so I did that series, and then when I went back to do the book. And figured out that, and and I re- actually, I remembered Spencer saying to me that, you know, he started out with pills. Um, I went back to say, well, I took a reporter here who had covered the 2007 Purdue sentencing. I took, uh, here at the Roanoke Times, I took him out for coffee, just down the street here. And I said, tell me about it. Like, what do you remember? And he remembered, you know, things that are directly in the show. I went back and re-reported it. I went back. I found Ed. I called Ed. He hadn't been doing his activism for a while. And uh, he sort of brought me up to speed. He introduced me to Barbara, who was the Barbara Van Royen, who um, was the first person to submit this FDA petition to have Purdue taken off the market until it could be reformulated to be abuse resistant. Um, I found Dr. Van Zee, who was the first physician in America to call Purdue on the phone and say, look, I know it says uh, is believed to reduce abuse and is less than 1% addictive here on the label, but I've got kids I, I helped be born, kids I immunized, overdosing in the high school library of this stuff. This is, uh, this, you really need to take it off the market. So I went back to tell the story of, a, of how it got uh, started in these small little towns, which Purdue targeted because there were people with genuine workplace injuries there and doctors there were already comfortable prescribing competing opioids like Lortab and Percocet. And they sent the reps in toting gifts with the message that Oxycontin was safer because of this time release mechanism. Um, which we know now it wasn't. The mechanism was super easy to get around. And um, and I said, the story I want to tell, the first part will be, how do we get here? So that's the story of it landing in these small towns. Then uh, what happened next, which the second half of my book is a story of it hitting the suburbs and every damn community in America. And then kind of what's going on now with regard to the war on drugs. And so um, that's how I broke down the story, but I really want to say, how are people doing now, right? So, you know, you you went back to the first places where it broke out. And, and if you've never driven through one of these small, distressed, former factory towns, I mean, it's like the third world. It, and these communities will be generations coming back from it. And I really wanted America to see that 
because I think it's influencing our politics. I think it's influencing our deaths of despair. Um, I mean, we know it is. We, we have documentation that it is. And so my new book now, which comes out in August, is called Raising Lazarus, Hope, Justice, and the Future of America's Overdose Crisis. And uh, it's, it's a sequel to Dope Sick. Got it. Just, um, just in case our listeners are not familiar with Dope Sick, best-selling book by Beth Macy that we're talking who we're talking to today also turned into an eight-part series on Hulu if you have not seen it if you've not either seen it or read the book or both and you're an American you need to do that because until you do that you don't have a clue I'm just going to make an editorial comment Beth that um you know, we've got grown sons and one of them lives here in the same area. And we've talked to them about the podcast and we interviewed this person, we interviewed that person. And I, I'm fairly certain we talked about Purdue, but it wasn't until they sat down and watched the series that they went, OMG. Because as I describe it to people, if your book were fiction, it would be a really great riveting book you know, thriller drama. The fact that it's true is absolutely horrifying. It is absolutely horrifying and it is completely true. Well, you know, it's completely true. I'm preaching to the choir, but I, that's what I say to people because I say, have you seen dope sick? No, haven't seen it. Okay. This is why, this is why you need to see it anyway. What I think it does is it takes this very slow simmering story that's been happening for 25 years now and as we know and ed and i will talk about this how they've maneuvered around justice at every single angle and it makes it palatable in an entertaining riveting a kind of legal legal crime thriller way and it but but mostly it makes it understandable it does and and it puts the blame on who deserves the blame. You know, Richard Sackler famously said, uh, blame the abusers. Let's hammer the abusers. They are the criminals and the culprits. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name or you can email us at the addiction podcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, the addiction podcast.com or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. And when we as a society keep incarcerating people rather than uh, giving them treatment for their medical condition, we are blaming them. 
we, we shouldn't be blaming uh, them and following Richard Sackler's advice. And that's the real turn we need to make. And that's why my new book is about hope, because we know what works, and, and justice, because they shouldn't be able to maneuver around uh, justice for a third time. Absolutely not. I, and I think that one of the beauties of the series is that, you know, you two are on the front lines and you, for your own specific reasons, are able to confront the evil that is the Sacklers. A lot of people can't do that. So when you put it in a series like that, it may become a little bit easier for those people to confront it and they have to confront it. It's not fiction. It's a true story. And the bottom line is that family is evil. Let's just call a spade a spade. They're evil. And there was no, um, they just wanted to make money. That's the whole reason for them. And um, yeah, and I think that books such as Dope Sick and other books that have been written, the Dope Sick series, they just keep shedding the light on the Sacklers. And I think, um, you know, previous to the internet, Ed, you were talking about how the internet was just kind of getting started. They could have hidden from this. They can't hide from it now. They can't do nah. that. You know, and it while they have tons of money to hire lawyers and win in this court or that court, where they will never win is in the court of public opinion. And that is coming more and more obvious as it moves forward. Right. I, I like to chime in about Dope Sick myself. So first off, it's great that you're telling everybody to watch it. Also tell them you can sign up for 30 days free because <laughs> a lot of people don't. Uh, I don't have Hulu. Ah. 30 days free. Okay. You can binge it and boom, it's done. Yep. And I knew this was coming out and I knew it was going to be good. But never in my wildest dreams did I think that what Beth and Danny Strong did is it literally a masterpiece. I agree. And I, I watched it three times. And even on the third time, I was catching little nuances that I missed the first two times. This is how well done and deep it is. And it's 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 amazing. And I told Danny Strong, I am so impressed with him because here's a man who hasn't lost anybody who's really not affected. But when he read a New Yorker article about the Sacklers and what they've gotten away with, it outraged him. And he did something about it and he hooked up with Beth. And yes, when I used to tell this story, I'd get overwhelmed. And now I know why. So that's an eight-hour series, and that tells the story, but basically it goes up to 2007. So there's another eight hours to be told, and I'm praying we get a season two of Hulu. Oh, yes. We need to do that. And I just want to say to the listeners, while it's true you can get Hulu for free and you can binge it, I don't care if you have to pay for it. This is money that you need to (laughs) spend because you need to be educated in this situation. And whether or not you have a family member that is affected by this, we don't have a family member that's affected by this. But you know what? Every single person 
listening or watching this podcast is responsible for their own area and they're responsible for what's happening in the world today. And if you don't take that responsibility and at minimum get yourself educated, you just have your head in the sand. I'm sorry. And, and yeah, anyway, okay. Back off my soapbox. I do get there. <laughs> okay. So Ed, bring us up to date. Um, as you said, the series goes up to 2007, way more has been happening since then. And okay, Beth, I, want, so, I also want to hear about your op-ed, Beth. I was reading it a little bit yeah. before we started, but go ahead, Ed. Okay, so Beth alluded to it. So what RAP did after our 2003 protest, we did a couple more protests. We went to the FD, we went to FDA meetings. We went to a, not a criminal trial, a trial where a Purdue reps trial, she sued for wrongful termination. And even though she has a gag order, Ed Bish doesn't. And Ed Bish sat through five days of her trial. So they basically fired her for not calling on pill mill doctors. She did not want to go to certain doctors because they, she knew they were pill mills. So they wound up firing her. And, um, this was in Tampa Bay, ah. and she had she had one local lawyer. Purdue showed up with ten lawyers. They knew what was at stake. It it, it was such a travesty of justice. So needless to say, there are ten high powered lawyers won the case. And just like one of the reasons why this has gone on so long is they always seal the record. They always insist on gag orders. Not only do they seal the records, in some cases, they actually destroyed the evidence. Destroyed. So they, they told her that she'd have to, if she talked about it, she would have to uh, go back and pay all the legal fees, including their 10 lawyers. Right. They, I, they I remember that so, story. So Karen, Karen has not talked about it, but yeah. like I said, I was there. I'm allowed to talk about it. Yep. Um, so that, so a after that, around 2012, I, I was burnt out. We weren't getting nowhere fast, even though, you know, we were able to warn a lot of people and um, they came out with the new Oxycontin, which is another scam, but. They came out of that in 2010. So really the press stories really backed off. So I, I was burned out. So like I semi-retired and uh, it wasn't until Beth called me at work one night where I got an email. And uh, so I had, I went back, I told her the whole story. And then after, so after that, uh, it was still kind of quiet till her book came out. Then her book came out and it started getting a little more press. And then it, what really triggered the latest things is Massachusetts filed a lawsuit and they named the Sacklers. And not only that, Massachusetts was able to get their lawsuit on the Internet. Purdue, again, tried to block it, tried to keep everything quiet. But the Massachusetts state judge 
gave them permission. And when that went up on the internet and I read that, I was like, oh my God, mm. I gotta get I gotta get back involved because it named their crimes, it named evidence, named the Sacklers. And next thing you know, a bunch of other states followed Massachusetts. So I think uh, between the states and private lawsuits, they were up to like 2,600 lawsuits. <laughs> so what did they do? They declared bankruptcy. Okay, I'm happy. Purdue Farmers going out of business finally. Until I read the article and it said, part of the bankruptcy, the Sacklers are insisting that they get civil immunity for anything. Not only the Sacklers, but a thousand of their friends, and I call them co-conspirators and accomplices. Yep. I, I read that the first day they declared bankruptcy, and I said out loud, this is a bankruptcy scam. Yep. And I called it a bankruptcy scam from day one, and I knew this was all about getting the Sacklers shield it because why do they need a shield because they're guilty as sin that's why that's right that's exactly right and you know and of course for those who are listening that um that bankruptcy decision has just been uh re revoked is that how we say it revoked by uh, there was Judge an appeal so Judge mcmahon yep so before that this is another thing so bankruptcy court you're you're allowed to like set up a phony office, basically a PO box anywhere, <laughs> and then you can pick your judge. Yep. This is well documented. So Purdue Pharma handpicked their judge for the bankruptcy, who happened to be a judge named Robert Drain in White okay. Plains, New York. So needless to say. I would call in and I would listen to the hearings. And if you didn't know who was talking, you would swear the judge was a Purdue lawyer. <laughs> and that's how it went. Every major decision went the way of Purdue Pharma. And we had, anyway, I got involved. I got on this ad hoc committee that some of us formed. We weren't interested in money. We were trying to prevent the Sacklers from getting immunity, and we wanted the truth to get out. And there was five of us, and we call it the Ad Hoc Committee on Accountability. And we got a pro bono lawyer, Mike Quinn, and every time he would argue a good point, it didn't matter if he had the law on his side. Half the time, this judge, Robert Drain, who, who has since announced that he's retiring, would ridicule them, literally, publicly ridicule them. You're not supposed to do that, okay? Well, guess what? Mike's argument, when it was appealed by several states, a lot of what, a lot of, a lot of stuff that Mike Quinn said in court, the appeals court agreed with. And yeah. the biggest thing was, these third-party releases are illegal and unconstitutional. And this is what the appeals court said. Now, of course, Purdue's appeal on that, so they might eventually win it. 
of course. But, but yeah, but then also, Beth, I want you to touch. We we're about to run out of a little bit of time here, but I want Beth to touch on the op-ed that she and Mr. Pelletier just submitted because that I think also kind of addresses a little bit about what you're talking, Ed, and how these guys need to be criminally prosecuted. Right. So about a month or two ago, Ed came down to Virginia for the premiere of Dopesick in uh, Richmond, where the most of the show was shot. And Mr. Peltier came uh, to a dinner we had beforehand, uh, as did one of the uh, federal prosecutors named Rick Mountcastle. He's the one portrayed by Peter Sarsgaard. Both of these guys worked on the 2007 uh, sentencing hearing uh, and the investigation that led to it. And they were both still outraged that Purdue, with the bankruptcy, this is before the appeal, seemed to be getting away with their crimes for a third time. And Ed said, uh, during this dinner we were having before the premiere, what can we do about it? And Peltier said, you know, it's, it should be in the Department of Justice's bailiwick. We pay taxes that we expect them to enforce the law. So Ed hatched this idea of uh, having a protest in front of the Department of Justice. It was on uh, December 3rd. We had three former prosecutors spoke. That's pretty unusual. Uh, In front of the Department of Justice, two of them had worked for the Department of Justice, um, one indirectly through the Virginia case. And Paul worked in the fraud division at the Department of Justice um, and knew all the details of how they had uh, broken the laws that led to the 07 uh, sentencing hearing. You know, that's where the Sacklers threw their three uh, lieutenants under the bus. And then um, recidivistly, uh, because in 2020, Purdue uh, filed uh, or admitted uh, continuing to break the law and committing acts of fraud and and, uh, anti-kickback violations. So um, so everybody spoke. We had about 200 folks there, uh, parents, people flew in from as far away as Hawaii. And so I decided to write an op-ed. Paul joined me um, and really to hammer home the point that he had made at that dinner uh, back in November that the DOJ needs to do its J-O-B. Uh, and that's a Paul line because uh, he just feels strongly that if they shouldn't chicken out again, they should do their job. And part of the reason they got hamstrung is, as uh, our, our other lawyer friend, Charlotte Bismuth says, like we're, we're playing checkers and Purdue's lawyers are paying uh, a 3D chess, right? Mm-hmm. So they, you know, with the venue shopping, with, um, you know, They've made millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars in legal fees and their consultants, uh, intimidating journalists, um, you know, uh, just all manner of trying to get maneuver their way uh, to get the outcome that they want in this bankruptcy. And so Paul and I wrote the op-ed, you know, basically to me, what was news in the op-ed as I went back and I counted all the overdose deaths since OxyContin came out. And this had never been reported. So if you go back, you'll see you'll see 841,000 overdose deaths since 1999. But Oxy came out in 1996. And if you go back to 1996, 
it's actually over a million overdose deaths. And I said, oh, I put that high up in the piece. I'm not saying Purdue Pharma is responsible for every single one of those overdose deaths. Plenty of people died from heroin, fentanyl, and from other drugs. Um, but they are responsible for the narrative that opioids are safe, which for 100 years we knew that opioids should only be used in severe pain, in short periods of time, cancer, end of life. And they contributed mightily to that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's why we wrote that piece. I, I think the op-ed, I started reading it um, right before we recorded today, and I'm definitely going to link to the op-ed. I'm also going to um, repeat to people that they need to write to the Department of Justice and demand that they do their J-O-B and they can refer to this op-ed. I will make that link available for everybody who listens to be able to use it and to demand that the DOJ get onto this and stop ignoring some of the biggest criminals that have existed in our country, in my opinion. I cannot thank both of you enough, not only for being on the podcast today, but also for being willing um, to fight this fight. It's not pretty. And you are confronting, as I said, you are confronting evil and you are bringing it to task. And thank you so much. Beth, your books are all available on Amazon. And I will- All um, the places where books are sold. Bookshop.org. Yeah, exactly. And and the series is on Hulu. I don't care if you have to pay for it, as I said, but if you don't want to pay for it, you can get a month free, like Ed says, and you can binge it. You need to watch it. It's part of your responsibility as a human being to watch it. Not dissimilar to knowing what there is to know about the Holocaust in Germany in World War Two. There you go. They need to they need to watch Dope Sick, but on on demand, on cable, on demand, me and Beth were on a great documentary called The Forgotten Epidemic. Mm-hmm. Dr. Art Van Z's on it. And it's a really good show, but it's not on the internet. You have to go on demand, but it's on there. MSNBC. Yep. And I will link I up to that one too. Right. And then if anybody's more interested in this Purdue bankruptcy scam, uh, insider Ryan Hampton wrote a book, Unsettled, just came out last month. And he was an insider. I'm in that book. And you'll, if you read that book, you'll see what kind of a scam it is. Exactly. Thank you both so much. I, I can't, I appreciate you both so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening and or watching today. I'm going to repeat what I said earlier in the podcast. If you have not seen the series Dope Sick and you are not fully informed on the lies and fraud and crimes of Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family, then you need to watch this series as an American or as anybody. As a human, you need to see the series. You need to understand it. There is evil there. It has affected all of us in one way or another, and it cannot go unpunished. It cannot. If you or someone you know needs treatment, please reach out. There are many resources to help you, and we will be back again with another interview. We're also going to do more on this whole Purdue Pharma Sackler thing. 
Take care. We'll be back next week. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.